we come to the end of our Christmas Journeys Advent series, uh, we're going to be looking into the journey today, the journey out of Egypt. We see this in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23, as we read earlier, and I would invite you to turn there again in your Bibles as we begin. This is undoubtedly among the hardest, most grim stories in the Bible. Yet through it, we gain a truer understanding not only of the background of our Savior Jesus Christ, but of God's active work in the, His plan of redemption. We see God's heart for all nations, His direct involvement in ensuring the salvation of His people, and the absolute certainty that no one and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Before we look at the text itself, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we open your book today, make it clear to us what you are saying. Father, as we, as we consider what you said through Matthew's pen, Help us today to remember the reality of your presence, your plan. That you are always with us and whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, however scary it might be, that we are never, ever out of your hand. Now, Father, watch over us as we participate together in the message that you have for us from your word watch over your servant's faltering tongue father protect us from any error that my humanness might interject speak by your spirit guide us into knowledge and wisdom teach us to rest in you we pray this in the name of the one who is given for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. As we, uh, as we look at the text here in Matthew, there are some pretty specific things that we want to pay attention to. And uh, we're going to... We're going to take it in three stages. So the first thing we're going to do is walk through the text itself. We're going to see what, what is it that Matthew's actually saying here. Then we want to take a look at some of the observations that we should notice about the passage. Why does it matter? Why does this that Matthew is saying impact us? Lastly, we'll consider some of the ramifications or the general applications of those observations that we make. So once we see why it matters and how it impacts us, how does it affect us today, or what should we do about it? In all three stages here, we're going to see this core reality. So as we go through this, I want this to be fresh in your minds. God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption cannot fail. I want to say it again because I want to make sure that we don't miss it. Everything that we look at in the text is governed by this principle. So we want to see this central thing, this core reality. God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption 
cannot fail. So first, let's understand some context. You'll see in your program a place to, to pay attention to this. Matthew writes to establish Jesus as God's eternal king. Matthew writes to establish Jesus as God's eternal king, and he focuses heavily on prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Matthew's gospel also depicts the character of Christ and God's heart for people of all nations. Let me read that again, make sure we catch it all. Matthew writes to establish Jesus as God's eternal king, and he focuses heavily on prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Matthew's gospel also depicts the character of Christ and God's heart for people of all nations. So as we are looking at this, just a little background for us to understand, Matthew is writing a distinctly Jewish account for a primarily Jewish audience. He's looking to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who, had prom who was promised as king of Israel forever. <clears throat> Everything that, Ma that Matthew writes here has that purpose as its backdrop. Notice this. These events fulfill prophecies about the Christ, God's king, establishing his identity. Matthew will draw that out. They also reveal God's active role in carrying out his plans and preserving his beloved son. These events also reveal how deeply intertwined the Gentiles are with God's redemptive agenda. Now, Matthew is writing for a mainly Jewish audience with a mainly Jewish focus, but he's also sort of flipping the script. The Gentiles, the outsiders, for most Jews, were outside of God's plan. Matthew, a Jew writing to Jews, who walked with Jesus has now seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and has a new understanding that God himself in the person of the Son has revealed to him. All right, so the, these ideas here uh, about the, the Gentiles being part of God's redemptive agenda were foreign to most of the Jews. They saw themselves as God's special people, which they certainly were and are, but they saw that to the exclusion of the nations. And that was never how God intended his people to be. So let's back up for just a moment and take a look at the account of the Magi in verses 1 to 12. We looked at this previously. So the Magi... Uh, are, you, you may have wise men in your translation. They, it's kind of a, a strange term. We talked about that previously, so I won't go back into it. But understand that they came from the nations. There's an intertwining coming out of Babylon, the, the intermingling of God's people with the Gentiles following the exile brings about this connection between Gentile Babylon, pagan Babylon, and the Christ who would come from God. So, <clears throat> excuse me, as we look at the first part of the chapter, we see, and we'll just see sections of it, 
We see in chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. King Herod and those around were greatly disturbed. It, it messed up the comfort of Israel to have these folks come in to speak of this Messiah surely would stir up Herod and the people were not interested in losing their heads over this. These magi, these wise men, answered in verse 5, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied to, to the question of where he would be born. For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this understandably disturbed Herod, who is sitting on the throne, he is known for his brutality in eliminating rivals, even putting to death one of his wives and his own children, because he would brook no threat to his throne. Now he's getting toward the end of his life, and thereby the end of his rule, but he is still not tolerating any type of competition. Nobody. In fact, Herod rounded up uh, the Jewish leaders and rulers and, and put them in jail as he neared the end of his life just to make sure that when he died, someone would be in mourning. He gave orders for them to be put to death when he died. So that while nobody would probably mourn Herod, they would mourn nonetheless. Pretty, pretty tricky plan. Not exactly a nice guy, but very effective in getting what he wanted. So now, now we see that he's upset by this prophecy. These magi, these foreign dignitaries have come, and they're saying, where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? Red lights are flashing in Herod's mind. Uh, We've got to snuff this out. If he's willing to snuff out his wife and kids to make sure that there's no threat to his throne, this strange baby is not a problem for him. This is the background to what we are reading. So the Magi, the wise men, find Jesus. They find the one that they had been seeking. And when they find him, they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they return to their country by another route. Then we pick up with our text in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Kind of a bad deal, right? The Messiah is here the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been longing for, but those to whom he was sent aren't even going to find out if Herod kills him. They're never even going to know. And yet God intervenes. You realize that God's going to get his will accomplished no matter what. He'll do it through our cooperation. He'll do it through our opposition. One way or another, God accomplishes his purpose, always, without fail. We can be on his team, so to speak, or we can be his opposition. One of those is a better option than the other, as we'll see. 
So stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Who's intervening here? Herod is seeking to destroy the Messiah because he doesn't want any threat to his reign. But God himself intervenes. God, through this angel, through this dream, says, take the child, get out, run. Now, that's not cowardice, that's obedience. Sometimes when God says it's time to go, you just got to go. Notice the immediate obedience. He says, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 14, so he got up, Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Pick up on the immediacy here. God says go, whether it's God or an angel speaking. God says go. He doesn't say, oh man, let me rest up, finish the night out. We'll go get some breakfast. We'll get a good, strong start in the morning. Let's get some, you know, some uh, kosher omelets, and, and we'll, you know, we'll get fueled up and, and prepare. He gets up during the night. There is an immediate, an immediate obedience to the Father. Now, remember, Joseph isn't Jesus' father. He's his dad on earth, but his father is God himself. But God uses... His earthly dad, Joseph, to teach what Jesus already knows, being Jesus, what he already has in perfection. But the raising in God's sovereignty comes from his human parents. Jesus learned from Joseph immediate obedience. God says it, I do it, there's no hesitation. I'm not waiting around. God says, get up and go. We're not waiting for morning. We're not waiting for breakfast. Right? Get, let's, let's get on the horse. We're out. And they head out in obedience. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, verse 15, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. I don't think I put this in your notes, in your program, uh, but you want to take a look at Hosea 11.1. 1. You can jot that down. We won't turn there for the sake of time today. But in, uh, in Hosea's prophecy, such a beautiful story about unfaithful Israel and faithful God lived out in Hosea's life. And the picture here of the children of God coming out of Egypt is used to illustrate that Messiah is coming from there. And so as Jesus now carries this out, God sends them through this, this running away, this exile, so to speak, back to Egypt where they had left, to pagan Gentile Egypt. Now there's a remnant of Jews there. Presumably they would have stayed there with them. Not very long, however, because we see immediately after they leave that Herod ends up dying. So, depending on scholars that you're looking at, some are saying that he was there maybe six months, maybe a little bit longer than that. In any case, for sure, Jesus was less than two years old. Assuming that, that uh, 
the scholars are correct, which I think is a fair assumption for us to assume, those who have dedicated themselves to understanding this, they believe that Jesus was maybe six months old and Herod puts a cushion in his call to kill these babies. Either way, Jesus is less than two years old. They go to Egypt to escape until the Spirit calls them back. Notice verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He wanted them to come and say, hey, we found the king. And he had told them, tell me so I can go and worship him. Except he wasn't really planning to worship him. He was planning to kill him. That would have been easy, wouldn't it? He was furious. And Herod, being Herod, gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. What kind of man does that? What kind of man, what kind of ruler responsible for the people decides that my holding on to my office, which I can't hold on to anyway, he's in the neighborhood of 70 years old, lifespan's not much past that, and we know that because he dies shortly after. What kind of man kills off all these babies to protect his own power? Same kind of man that killed off his wife and his kids. Herod, by this time, had lost his mind. He was doing all sorts of bizarre things. I hope you recognize that sin does that to us. Sin in its nature is a temporary insanity. And the longer we give it its head, the more insane we become. When we become convinced that our way is better than God's way. Pause for a second and let that sink in. You see, it seems really easy to see the evil in Herod killing these babies. But when we boil it down to the truth that we get convinced that our way is better than God's way, well, that applies to all of us. And that sort of temporary insanity leads us to do our thing instead of God's thing. To think somehow our plan is better. That's exactly what Herod did. He just had the power to take it where we couldn't. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Verse 17, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This horrific night where Herod gives the order and those who think they can justify themselves because they're just following orders. 
murder these babies. The slaughter of every male child under two years old in the entire community. Now Bethlehem is small, it's rural, they have more kids than, than what we have in our time, but in a town of maybe 500 people and the surrounding area, largely rural and agrarian, this is where the, the herds of sheep for the temple sacrifice are raised. It's David's town. Not David's city, Jerusalem, where he ruled, but this is the little podunk place that he came from. Maybe a third the size of our town here at most. And soldiers come into their homes, find their young children. If it's a girl, they get to live. Yay. Already terrifying the family. But if it's a boy, it dies. Herod will not tolerate a rival. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Continuing in verse 19, after Herod died, which is not long after these, these events, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Herod was powerful. Herod was wicked. That's a bad combination. But notice, Herod was mortal. God had already numbered his days. And it takes not long after this for Herod to be removed from the scene, to go the way of all flesh. And yet the sovereign king, not the vassal king Herod, but the sovereign king of all the earth remains. His plans are never thwarted. What God is doing, God does, period. And in the midst of this horrific event, God is still operating to preserve and protect the one who is sent to save us all. He appears to Joseph in a dream. Notice he doesn't appear to Mary, the mother of the child. He appears to Joseph. God puts an, an authority structure in place on purpose. Joseph is not the biological father of the child, but he has been given the charge by God to raise him. So when God speaks for the child, to protect the child, he speaks not to Mary, the one who gave birth to him, but to Joseph who does not share his gene pool but he bears the responsibility before God 
of raising this child. Joseph communicates with God regularly. We see the character of Joseph. He's only here for a couple of chapters. And then he disappears from the scene. We don't hear anything more about Joseph for the rest of Christ's biography in the Gospels. But the profound shaping that this earthly father had on Jesus and presumably on his siblings. And we see later that James ends up writing scripture and leading the church. The profound impact of a man who listens to God and obeys teaches his children to listen to, to God and obey. Men, especially if you're a father, we need to take our responsibility seriously. God holds us accountable in a unique way. There's no, there's no inequality between men and women. We are equal before God, but he has given us separate roles. And many has called you to represent him. If we don't listen and obey, our families suffer. Let's be wise. Let's be humble. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. God still lives. Herod does not. So he got up, took the child, verse 21, and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph and Mary, coming from there, settled after they went to Bethlehem for the census, settled until God called them out, sent them to Egypt to escape, as it were, the rage of a deadly king. When he calls them back, they seek to go back to this area where they've established a home, but God in his sovereignty ordains it to be so and orders events so that they go back to Bethlehem or to Galilee. So Jesus would be raised there and called a Nazarene. So was fulfilled with what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now there's there is no prophecy in Scripture that we see that, uh, that he would be called a Nazarene. There are a few major ways of understanding that. One is that uh, this, this picture of him being a Nazarene uh, is the, because the letters are uh, arranged differently. Hebrew is a little different than English. Take the vowels out. So there's a play on words here. So that Jesus... Is, uh, is referred to as a Nazarene, that he is coming out of here. We don't see it written in the prophets, but it is understood that the prophets had said this. 
And so as God calls him from there, we see even in those prophecies that we don't have in Scripture, that God continues to work, continues to do what he is doing. Matthew's writing a distinctly Jewish account for, primarily, for a primarily Jewish audience in order to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King of Israel. Everything he writes has that purpose as its backdrop. Everything that he is saying here, all of the messianic prophecies, the Old Testament quotations that he has, are with this as its backdrop, to show the people that this is the promised deliverer, the one that God promised to send. He didn't come the way you expected. He came as a baby in a manger. But he is the Christ nonetheless. These events fulfill prophecies about the Christ, God's King. They establish his identity. This is why Matthew, more than the other gospel writers, uses these Old Testament quotations and he cites these prophecies. They also reveal God's active role in carrying out his plans and preserving his beloved son. God is active in making sure that Jesus is protected. Herod thinks he has power. God actually has power. These prophecies also reveal how deeply intertwined the Gentiles are with God's redemptive agenda. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews, and yet these prophecies from the Jewish scriptures point to the Gentile connections of the Jewish Messiah. Joseph's obedience and Herod's wickedness both served to carry out God's perfect plan of redemption as God identified his king with both the Jews and the nations. Understand this, persecution is normal. Persecution is normal for those who represent the Lord, both for the Messiah and for his people. If we're going to follow Christ, <clears throat> understand now, persecution is our lot. Maybe the reason the church has become so weak Maybe the reason the church has become so indistinguishable from the world is because we've become so comfortable in the world. We have forgotten that those who stand for God stand against the pattern of this world. We are not called to blend in. We are called to stand out. That does not mean that we become that obnoxious Christian who's just looking to offend people, it means we stand for God's truth. Not judging others, but regularly, constantly judging ourselves. And, don't miss this, judging one another in the family. Because that's what family must do. As fruit inspectors, some have said, not looking to condemn one another, but to lift one another up. And when we see one another getting off the path, it is our job. It's our assignment to judge that and say, hey, brother, sister, come back. Where are you going? Follow Christ. The word is clear. 
We must be people of the book. Persecution is normal for those who represent the Lord. And that persecution separates. It sorts out like a gleaner separating wheat from chaff. It separates those who truly believe and belong to Christ from those who are comfortable in a world that has made following Christ synonymous with just looking the part. Maybe that's why it was so important for God to send John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ. Because John the Baptist, if you know nothing else about him, remember this, dude was weird. There's just, I mean, it's weird. He's running around unkempt, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey. Who does that? It's survival mode. It's not like, you know, fancy toppings on your pizza. He's out in the wilderness. He's not where the people are. That's an interesting place for the prophet to be out in the wilderness and the people come to him. John the Baptist was weird. You and I are not called to blend in. We're not called to be comfortable in the world. And I fear, as I read the scriptures, and I hope you fear as you read the scriptures, that we have become too comfortable here. I wasn't sure I wanted to preach this passage on this Sunday as we're going through this because it just seemed like a downer, right? This is the last Sunday of Advent, and so, you know, we're going into Christmas. We should do something joyful and celebratory. And instead, we get the murder of the innocents. But guys, we're not called to be comfortable we're not called to just be happy all the time. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We're called to be real. We're called to live openly before God, to seek his pleasure, not the pleasure and approval of those around us, not our comfort. So John the Baptist goes out doing none of the normal things, eating bugs. That's just weird. This is a weird guy. And Jesus comes with everybody else, as the Gospels describe it, eating and drinking and doing normal things, dressing normal. He's not out there eating locusts and honey. He's not out living in the wilderness. He's just following what God says every step of the way. And Jesus actually calls the people out on it. He says, look, John came being weird. I came being normal. And you can't handle either one of them. Because the reality is it's not about how you look or how you fit in with society. It's about how you fit in with God. How you fit in with his agenda. Are you obeying him? Because that's what matters. It doesn't matter if nobody else on the planet likes, loves, or respects you. I'm going to say that again, because I don't know if we really believe that. 
It doesn't matter if nobody else on the planet likes, loves, or respects you. What God thinks matters. So when John the Baptist comes as a weirdo that everybody looks at, what is going on with him? This ascetic guy, he's just weird. Didn't matter. He wasn't looking for their approval. He wanted the approval of God. When Jesus came and they said, oh, he's too worldly because he's doing all these things. Doesn't matter. He doesn't care. He's not looking for their approval. He's looking for the approval of the Father. And Jesus lived that out perfectly. I didn't mean to belabor that point because we've got other things we need to get on to, but understand that when, when we follow the Lord in, obedi in obedience, literally nothing else matters. Nothing. It doesn't matter how cool you are. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter how comfortable you are. Walk with God. Some observations here as we're working through this. Okay, so we've taken a look at the text. Now let's make some observations. Remember our core reality. God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption cannot fail. As we see the story, this great king, powerful, working really hard to make sure that there's no competition, he can't get rid of this low-income little baby. He wants to wipe him out. <coughs> Can't do it. But when God says it's his time, he's done. Understand this. God sovereignly works out his plans for our good and his glory. God sovereignly works out his plans for our good and his glory. Sovereignty means he has no rivals. Right? He is in charge of everything. God is completely God. He is the ruler. What God says happens, period. So God sovereignly works out his plans for our good and his glory. It didn't matter what Herod wanted. It didn't matter that this deadly king was raging. God said, my child, my son, my Messiah will do what I sent him to do. And nobody can thwart God's plans. God sovereignly works out his plans for our good and his glory. Next, notice this. God works through willing obedience. God works through willing obedience. Joseph's obedience in leading his family to follow the Lord fulfilled the prophecy of Messiah. Joseph was not the earthly father, or he was not the father of the Messiah, but he would be his earthly dad. He's adopted father, if you will. God tasked this man, human and flawed like the rest of us, with raising God's son. Now, I don't know if that hits you the same way that hits me. I am overwhelmed with the responsibility of raising my own children. And I fail so regularly. Can you imagine for a moment 
that you have been assigned to raise God's only begotten son? What a weight that must have been on his shoulders to know when I lose my temper, I'm losing my temper with God's son. It's bad enough when I do it with my kids, but this is God's son. When I give in to my weaker moments, how can I raise the Son of God when I fail with temptation regularly? What a weight that must have been for Joseph. What faith to walk with the Father. I have to imagine that Joseph was regularly on his knees. I can't imagine that the one raising the Son of God could for a moment think that he was good enough for the job. I'm not good enough for the job of raising my own kids. How can I raise the Son of God? How overwhelming it must have been. And yet, we see this picture of obedience from him. God works through willing obedience. Notice also that God also works through wicked opposition. God works through wicked opposition. As much as he worked through Joseph's willing obedience, he worked just as completely, just as sovereignly through Herod's wickedness, through Herod's wicked opposition. His wickedness fulfills prophecy. He's enraged by losing and he brooks no rivals to his power and glory. And all these horrible things, these horrible things are the result of our sin. But God foretold it. He said in advance, this is how it's going to be. That don't, now don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that's how God wanted it to be. This is God's sovereign will that it happened this way but it's not because at any point it pleased God. God always is in control. And yet God always allows us to make choices. How does that work? I have no earthly idea. Because I'm not him. So I don't get it. I don't get how I make choices that I'm responsible for and God is perfectly sovereign at the same time because my brain is tiny. God's brain is infinite. What I do know for sure is that just as God worked through Joseph, God also worked through Herod. Herod's hatred of God, his evil plans to destroy the Messiah, also worked to carry out God's plans. His wickedness fulfilled the prophecies. He is enraged by losing. Those who are driven by self, those who are driven by the flesh, just like Herod, will brook no rivals to power and glory. God works through willing obedience. He also works through wicked opposition. 
Notice this. Human power and authority pass away. God's power and authority are infinite and eternal. Human power and authority pass away. God's power and authority are infinite and eternal. The messenger of God tells Joseph that the danger has passed because Herod is dead. Now Herod was a vassal king under Rome. They kept him there because he was an effective leader. He did many, many great things. Toward the end of his life, he lost his mind. And he did far more horrible things, unspeakable things. Going into a town in its vicinity and killing all the babies and toddlers that happened to be male, just to make sure that you take out your rival. First off, it's kind of stupid, because if God's already said this is going to happen, did you think you're more powerful? The answer is yes. That's what we do every time we sin. Maybe we don't think about it consciously. But every time I sin, every time I do my thing instead of God's thing, inherently I'm saying, I am sovereign, not God. I am in control, not God. I get my way, God doesn't get his way. In the end, Herod might have thought he was winning. He still ends up in the ground. God is eternal. God's plans never fail. The messenger of God tells Joseph that the danger is past because Herod's dead. And he sends him back to Israel. Mighty Herod has fallen, but almighty God remains in control. Human power and authority pass away. God's power and authority are infinite and eternal. It's in this way that God sovereignly works out his plans for our good and his glory. No matter what happens. Our sin, our rebellion against God, I, I can't even comprehend how that's possible. How, how is it even possible for us to sin? And yet it is, and we do, and here we are, in opposition to God. But if I don't know anything else, I know this. God wins. End of story. That's it. God wins. And if I'm on his side, I win with him. And if I'm opposed to him, I lose. Period. There is no win apart from God. Period. God is alive. Right? God's alive. That's a great time for an amen there. God is alive. Not was alive. It wasn't like God started stuff off and then just disappeared. God is alive and active right now. Herod's dead. I'm going to be dead. You're going to be dead. Unless we find ourselves in Christ, the ever-living one. And we will live eternally with him. My body's going to pass away. That's all right. It's not doing me any favors half the time anyway. More often than not, this body's just dragging me down. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about, right? It hurts. I get up out of the chair and I start creaking. Every year it gets a little harder. And I keep thinking, oh, I'm going to get better. I'm I'm going to exercise a little more. Yeah, that exercise hurts, and so I do it a little less, and... I keep telling myself, I'm just going to have one piece of that pizza. And I, instead, I just have one pizza. You know. <laughs> Guys, 
There is no situation, no situation where God is not in control, whether we understand it or not. Let me, let me uh, move on. We've talked about um, we've talked about the text itself, what Matthew's saying. We've taken a look at some of the observations here that we needed to see about the passage and why it matters. Let's, let's talk for just a, a brief moment about some of the ramifications or the applications of this. I won't take as much time here, but we do need to see this. Because God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption cannot fail, there are some points that we need to, to be aware of. First, we can know that God's heart is to save sinners of all nations and backgrounds. We can know that God's heart is to save sinners of all nations and backgrounds. Israel was his chosen people, but Israel was the light through which God would save the Gentile nations. They forgot that. It was never about just Israel. It was always about God's heart for the human race that he created. We can know that God's heart is to save sinners of all nations and backgrounds. Secondly, because God's, God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption cannot fail, we can trust that he can and will save us through his son Jesus Christ. We are literally damned in our sin. We are literally bound for hell in our sin. And there is zero that we can do to fix that. But God, God intervenes. He reaches in and he snatches us from the fire we created. He takes us out of the damnation that we deserve. We earned it. But he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, and we can trust that he can and will save us through his son. Third, we can believe that God will finish what he started. We can believe that God will finish what he started. Understand this. If you feel God tugging you toward himself, if you have in your mind said, you know what, I want God more than I want my own way, nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing can. You can let go of your doubts. You can let go of your fears because when God saves you, you are saved. He finishes what he starts. If you desire to come to Christ, it's because God went beyond your sinful nature. He hacked the system, if you will, to give you a desire that is not part of your natural flesh. The desire to be saved, yeah, we all want that. Nobody wants to be destroyed. But the desire to do it God's way, on God's terms, is foreign to every sinful heart. All of us. Every single person. Nobody chooses God because you want that. You're too dark and sinful. 
And if you don't believe that, you probably haven't looked at yourself as deeply as you need to. But God reaches in and says, this one is mine. I'm changing this heart. So if you want God, it's because God has caused you to want God. And so we repent. We can believe that God will finish what he started. If we repent and we seek salvation from the Lord, and he is our Lord, not just the big guy in the sky, not some deity alongside others, not one religion among many, but when we recognize that he alone is sovereign and supreme, and we come to him on his terms, we will be saved. There is no question about it. If you're seeking him, it's because he put it in you to seek him. Seek him on his terms. He will finish what he started. Fourth, we have no need to fear any evil or scary thing. Maybe you haven't contemplated that yet. We have no need to fear any evil or scary thing. What evil or scary thing in your life is bigger than God? Nothing is bigger than God. Now, I don't know if you believe me or not, so I want to hear you say it because you need to hear yourself say it. Say it with me. Nothing is bigger than God. One more time. Nothing is bigger than God. Not the world pressing down on you. Not the scary things in life. Not even your sin. Nothing is bigger than God. When God says you are His, nothing can take you out of His hand. Nothing. Not even you. We have no need to fear any evil or scary thing. We have no need to fear any evil or scary thing. Herod could not get to Christ. No matter what he thought he was doing, he could not get to Christ. And even if he were to take the life of those who followed Christ, it does not change the reality of life. This world will press down on you. Your sin will take you places that you should not be and keep you there longer than you want to stay. There's evil in this world all the time. Amen? Everywhere we go, there is evil. Criminality, drug abuse, disease, COVID, pick it. There's all kinds of evil all over the place. Natural evil, supernatural evil, volitional evil, in other words, that which we choose, and natural evil that happens as a result of our sin, such as the, the natural disasters that cause many deaths. All of these things are the result of sin. But we have no need to fear any evil or scary thing because God holds us in the palm of his hand and nothing can change what he has in store for us. Because God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption cannot fail, notice this last point, we can rejoice in suffering 
Because God uses bad circumstances to work out his good plans for us. We can rejoice in suffering because God uses bad circumstances to work out his good plans for us. Just as we see this here in this nativity picture, as we see Christ being born and being raised, nothing can touch God's anointed. There are always going to be wicked things that happen here. And we can rejoice in that suffering. Because if Christ suffered, and he suffered even unto death on a cross, if Christ suffered, then we can recognize that no suffering can take away our victory. Nothing can take us out of God's hand. God uses bad circumstances to work out his good plans for us. Let me wrap this up. Matthew wants his readers to understand who Jesus is as God's promised king. The Messiah, the Christ, was revealed as such throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament. But Matthew knew Messiah personally in the flesh. Not just foretold, but now revealed. Matthew and the other gospel writers had seen Messiah's character, his heart. They knew that the one to sit on David's throne forever was also the suffering servant. They understood that the, that the deliverer came first and foremost to save his people from their sins. And his people, his chosen ones, would come from every nation and background, not just Israel. Nothing would get in the way of that salvation. God actively ensures that his glorious plan of redemption cannot fail. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. Not Herod. Not the evil things that happen in this world. Not even your sin or mine. God accomplishes what he purposes. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. He is sovereign over all things, working all things together for the good of those who belong to him. To the praise of his glorious grace, he works through our obedience, but even those who wickedly oppose him end up spotlighting God's power and faithfulness. So where are you this morning? Where's your heart and mind right now? Right at this moment. Are you living as if you're the Lord of your own life, calling your own shots? living according to your own pride, leaning on your own understanding? If that's you, then repent. If you know it, repent. Can't say it more clearly than that. Turn from your way to God's way. Turn away from that way of thinking and receive Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. Dump your pride, confess your sin, cry out to Jesus and let him give you a brand new, eternal, real life that no one and nothing can ever take away. Make him master. Let him call your shots. And you will never be the same again. Have you professed Jesus as Lord, but you're struggling to actually live like it? Maybe, maybe it's hard to tell the difference between your life and the life of an unsaved person in the world. Perhaps you're struggling with sin you can't seem to let go of. 
Maybe you feel overwhelmed by fears and doubts. Or perhaps the Holy Spirit is telling you right now that you haven't taken the Lord seriously enough. You've come to Him, but you're living a good and responsible life under your own power, not His. A life that the world sees as good, not offensive. It is impossible. It is impossible to live like Christ and not offend the world. If we're too comfortable here, we better ask ourselves some hard questions. They crucified the Master. If his servants look like him, how could we expect less? Understand that failures cannot undo what God has done, nor can they stop what he has determined. God is sovereign. If you have turned to him for salvation, nothing, nothing can take you out of his hand. Any more than Herod could snuff out that little baby. How hard is it for a king with an army to kill a little baby? Not that hard. He killed all the rest of them. But nothing can thwart God's plans. Not Herod. Not your sin or mine. So if you know that you're not aligned with God, you, you belong to Him, but you've not been walking right, then just like that unsaved person, repent. Turn. Get right. His grace is bigger than your sin. But if you know His grace, you won't want to sin. How could I be saved by His grace and then spit in His eye with my lifestyle? As we bring this to a close, understand that God actively ensures that His glorious plan of redemption cannot fail it can't if you belong to him give up control let him drive your boat with that let's close father you are so much so much more so much bigger so much greater and purer than we could even imagine Lord, help us not to see you through our own eyes, but to begin to see life through your eyes. Thank you for your word, the lens that helps us focus on your way. Now, Father, as we sing your praises, remind us that we have been called out of Egypt to live with you in the here and now. These things we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.